we have history looking back to say that when we ignore international affairs, when we, when we go ostrich-like, unfortunate things happen that have long-term negative consequences. So we must stay engaged and it must be a balancing act. And it's not either or, it is both. And it's the proportion thereof of activity. This is the Orientalist Express podcast, episode 33. This is the show that brings together young professionals from all over the world to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. The goal of this podcast is to make American foreign policy interesting and easy to understand for those who don't follow it too closely. So I'm Nicholas Hayen, founder of the Orientalist Express site and president of the board of directors for the Minnesota International NGO Network. I also serve on the Minnesota Advisory Committee for the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, which is an advocacy organization dedicated to promoting the importance of American global engagement in international affairs. So today, I am honored to have a very special guest on the podcast. I'm joined today in the virtual studio by former retired United States Navy Admiral Michael Franken. Admiral Franken has a long and prestigious career in military and public service, and most recently served as the Deputy Director for Military Operations for the United States Africa Command. And Admiral Franken is also running for a U.S. Senate seat from Iowa this year. So be sure to check out his website at frankenforiowa.com to learn more about his campaign and how he plans to make America's foreign and domestic policy work for the average Iowan. So Admiral Franken, thank you so much, and it's great to see you again, and welcome to the show. Hello, Nicholas. Thank you for having me very much. Of course. It's so great to have you on, and I can't thank you enough for all you've done to advance American values and interests basically all over the world. So I know foreign policy isn't usually top of mind for most voters, uh, especially with all of our current domestic um, concerns that, that we want to alleviate. But if there's one thing we've seen from the past two years of pandemic, it's that events that happen anywhere in the world can have a direct impact on the lives of people here at home in America's heartland. So these days, those lines between foreign and domestic policy are becoming less and less obvious. So I'm really grateful to have this discussion and to learn how you see America's foreign policy as benefiting the people in your home state of Iowa. So first of all, uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what first drew you into the military and public service. Well, to your, to your last comment, uh, Nick, the, the interesting uh, issue that has come about due to international travel and the technical aspects of communication today, media, et cetera, is international affairs and, and the, the, the trade mechanisms that we currently have becomes a direct influence on in domestic affairs. And domestic affairs more broadly across the continent uh, have big impact on regional and local politics as well. So there's a, a sinewy connection across the spectrum from local politics, here I am in Des Moines today, to international affairs as broadly as, uh, as our Dep Deputy Secretary of State's discussing issues about Ukraine today. So me, I am a fourth generation rural Iowan uh, from the Northwest corner. My ancestors were homesteaders. I'm the last of my parents' nine kids. Uh, my dad, a typical in the giants of the earth's uh, environment, my dad was hardworking, a tough guy, 
uh, World War II wounded vet, came back and carved out his, his life as a, as a repairman, as a machinist, uh, working on farm equipment. That's the environment I grew up in, a machine shop and, and on the farm. My mom was uh, pretty educated for the, for the day in the 30s. Uh, benevolent, smart. She was a one-room schoolhouse teacher, and uh, that was, was the center of my universe, Lebanon, Iowa. About 50 people, 11 of whom were in my family. Uh, and no stop sign, gravel road, that sort of thing. And But it was a time when small-town America, small-town Iowa, where's where you oftentimes move to, not from, and the future, frankly, was broad and, uh, and infinity. So although I had a very... Um, small uh, world in Lebanon, Iowa. Uh, I was always aware due to my mom's insistence to read, and I had older brothers and sisters who brought the world from far away home to uh, Lebanon, Iowa. And matter of fact, I recall the Der Stern magazine being delivered to the Frankens. Here we had uh, one little bathroom that was made out of a closet in our, in our little house, little house, but we had a piano, um, and, and four bedrooms, and we're all crowded on in. It's a great way to, live, to, to grow up, and uh, we grew our food, and we, and we lived off the land. I uh, come from a family that, that saw military service as something that was an option in life, that mostly the men did back in years past. That has now since changed. Going back to my, my grandfather was a World War I wounded vet. Um, I've had brother-in-laws and a brother who have at one time covered all the all four services uh, during the Vietnam era. And um, now the next generation is doing the same. It was a way to get educated. It was a way to see the world and ultimately develop a skill craft that we would use later in life. I joined the Navy only because the Air Force uh, didn't answer their phone that day and um, applied for a scholarship. I was working at a hog, uh, a hog, a hog uh, slaughterhouse to, uh, to make ends meet while I was in college and uh, a series of other jobs and got accepted for a scholarship. Thank you, mom. Uh, and said about a different life. Didn't know I was going to stay in for so long, Thought I was going to ultimately go to medical school. That never happened. One thing turned into the next. And I sit before you today as a person reasonably satisfied with how, how things in life have turned out for me, a wife and two kids and all that. And uh, I'm happy to answer your questions today or, or, or comment on them as you wish. Yeah, that's excellent. And I definitely know the, uh, the farm up, well, the, uh, the small town upbringing, I should say. I'm originally from uh, Mitchell, South Dakota, home of the Corn Palace, if you've heard Corn of that. Is, absolutely. Yep, that's the one thing everybody knows from there. Um, yeah, actually, let's, let's talk a little bit more about that role as um, Deputy Director of Military Operations for U.S. Africa Command. So for our listeners, you know, what exactly is Africa Command and what did your position do in particular? We have regional combatant commands, Indo-Pacific, Central Command, South, Southern Command, which, and they're, they're uh, you can tell where they're, what areas that they provide the DOD perspective in those areas. And they're in command of the U.S. forces and sometimes allied forces in those regions. So Africa Command was the last of the regional commands that organized, and it came about during the Bush administration. Uh, there were ideas that uh, there was an ascendant Africa, 
that we could do uh, some, some good under the broad chapeau of the 3D concept of development, diplomacy, and defense. And under the broad defense category, it's security, the security necessary to set about the diplomacy uh, and the development effort. So the command was set up in Germany, and there's a lot of controversy as to why it's there, but uh, that's where it is. And, um, and it was organized differently. And where me as the deputy commander for, for military operations, I am the number two in the command uh, under the commander, but uh, my counterpart is an ambassador. And he and I, at the time, we shared a wall. We had a, a door that flopped in between our two, two offices and we walked cleanly and often between each, each other's meetings. When I was gone, he would do his best to fill my role and vice versa. In staff meetings, et cetera, we were represented by treasury and anti-drug and academics, other, other defense agencies and intelligence agencies. And, and we did an entirely different basket of work while we were on the continent, besides doing the more traditional post 9-11 defense activity. And my job was overseeing generally all of it. And it was uh, one of the high bars of one's career. That's, that's excellent. And I, I'm glad that you pointed out that it's more than just the military aspect of it, right? So the Africa command and those combatant commands in particular, you know, they separate it. They separate all of our efforts via geography, of course, but it's, it's more than just defense, as you said, it also includes development and diplomacy. So I would imagine that you were working not just to, you know, help uncover or uh, counter any like terrorist cells in the region, but also to work on development projects, or at least to help coordinate um, some of the backup security support for that. Would that be part of it as well? Even more than that. For instance, one of the one of the programs under DOD was the PEPFAR, which hmm. is a Bush era program that in today, even today, keeps vast numbers of AIDS patients alive uh, with antivirals. Yeah, that's uh, the uh, it, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, which I think actually is uh, credited with saving almost 20 million lives, if I remember correctly. Well, you know, just a story in that regard. I was in Mozambique one time at their foreign service college, and 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 I was asked, hey, you know, Mr. American Admiral, uh, what, if, what has America really done for Mozambique? And I said, well, I appreciate the question. Does anyone here know anyone with AIDS? And of course, in Mozambique, all the hands went up. Everybody did. I said, well, 90% of your patients are being treated by, by a program from the Americans. And shall we go on from there? And, and it, they, no, they didn't know. You know and, uh, and that was a, an epiphany for them. And that was run under the, under the aegis of defense. So yes, to your point, um, we were the integrators with diplomacy and development in a typical staff meeting. And you can tell a lot as to who, what, the, what the command emphasis is by who attends staff meetings. And I've, I've been in other regional combatant commands. Uh, I spent over three years at U.S. Central Command. I was a Washington, D.C. coordinator for, for Pacific Command for operations and two tours in the joint staff. Uh, and, and then, of course, twice I served under under AFRICOM. So there was a time when AFRICOM was stood up when people were questioning its worthfulness. Mm. 
Yeah. That's just not done anymore. Uh, that's no longer a discussion. Um, and, and let me go back to the staffing issue. In a morning staff meeting, I would have a USAID person, obviously state people, agency, treasury, FBI, intelligence folks, uh, and also academics who were gifted in the, in the area. Oftentimes, uh, host nation individuals that ultimately came back, came, became U.S. citizens and have a security clearance and were working at the command. So we worked the full spectrum of development. And, and I can, I've, I've got a vast number of stories where we were the, the peacekeepers versus doing something uh, more dire. Yeah, absolutely. And as um, actually that kind of ties into my next point is, you know, as you mentioned, Africa is one of the fastest growing regions in the world. You know, there's this tremendous potential to form these new alliances and economic partnerships with this really rapidly developing part of the world. So you kind of touched on it a little bit, but what would you say, what do you think America's engagement with Africa should look like? And, and more generally, what should that American engagement look like with the entire world? Well, um, broad question, generally an infinity answer. Yeah. <laughs> the, we are finding our way with every passing day. And when we use generalities of Africa, we need to be aware that there is no Africa writ large. It's mm -hmm. a, an amalgamation of all sorts of issues yeah. across the spectrum of time that, that encompass from climate challenges to health to animosities that are as age old as, as humankind, to what's, what's in store for the future. And, and to your point, it's safe to say that in 20 years time, half the people entering the job market worldwide will be from Africa. And most mm -hmm. of those people will, will come from south of the Sahel. Yeah. And, and uh, where a, a nation such as Nigeria, I believe is the fifth largest Muslim country and the fifth largest Christian country. Hmm. So there are, uh, there are challenges viewed by some. There's also opportunities viewed by others who are more optimistic. I'm part of the optimistic camp. I chose to go to Africa to be commander of the Joint Task Force, the senior person living on the continent, uh, because I had a heartfelt attachment, having first visited Africa uh, in the, I believe, the late 70s, uh, and knowing that in a big effort when the fulcrum of, of achievement is very close to you, meaning what you do has a big impact down the line, I saw an opportunity to Im impact people's lives in a positive sense. So, uh, and that's what, that's what AFRICOM has been doing. Now, it may be as a small, small change as eradication of non-Indigenous uh, species, invasive species, mm -hmm. or it could be taking piracy off the coast of Somalia from an all-time high and, and 18 months later having it zero, not just reduced, wow. but zero. That's done by, not by violence, that's ge done generally by inventive thinking and, and uh, determining other means of employment and occupation for individuals and trading opportunities. So this is done by living on the continent, knowing what impacts people and, uh, and pivoting accordingly. Yeah, it definitely takes that um, kind of, as you said, that three-pronged approach of develop, 
defense development and diplomacy, and specifically a lot of development where we get these projects and actually help, they, they create a return on investment where it's not just, you know, spending money abroad, it's really investing in businesses abroad that then, you know, hopefully partner with American corporations as well and um, stimulate the the overall economy. So, you know, it's it's that comprehensive whole approach that I think, and it seems you agree, really provides the best results. What, what we thought about every day is how do we best integrate the diplomacy and development spheres? And the crossover with our funding level was, was very effective because we were permitted a substantial crossover in AFRICOM. And that w- worked in such areas as uh, we built schools when I was there. I mean, literally uh, with DOD fundings and medical clinics and housing. Uh, we drilled wells in concert with the uh, with the Minister of, of of Natural Resources in various countries. Uh, the uh, we taught people how to how to do proper agriculture that was more sustainable and with higher yields. Early on, of course, Ebola was an issue, and I and and DoD had a big role in that. But I concentrated a lot on children and women's health. Yeah. As I saw the development of the continent and the increased life expectancy in the continent had a direct, it started with those two issues, the, the well-being of children, which included education and women's health. That was a big focus for us. And, and my staff knew that whatever project we were, we were contemplating, they better address two things, what it does for women and what it does for the kids. Yeah. And, and I think that's a good point because it's a very under um, underappreciated segment of the population that sometimes does get overlooked by these programs. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, let me say that uh, one time I, I asked a host nation where I was living um, how I could best help him for his uh, in in to, to as a as a gift back to him for his benevolence and in, in letting us uh, work from there. And he said, "Would you please help my people live longer?" which is, oh, hmm, okay. And we set about doing that. And to this this day, uh, there is some credit due us for doing exactly that. And and a a host of other issues. I can say that that ISIS does not have a substantial footprint, a caliphate on the continent because of US AFRICOM and because of our effort to eradicate in concert with host nations, uh, and also various tribal elements and, and militias to, to get rid of them in, in Libya and also stop them from expanding in Tunisia. You know, there's, uh, there's sides of our activity that, that are a little edgy because we are a military. Uh, but I will say as well that the, existing, the existence of South Sudan is a manifestation of the U.S. AFRICOM because we provide that, that security necessary that, that was helpful in settling issues in the Sudan. Yeah, that's phenomenal because it lays the groundwork for that type of stability that we all need. How would you say we, we best balance these international responsibilities that we have with the need to solve some of the major domestic problems here at home? I mean, just the other day, I saw a Facebook post which said, you know, we have all these and it listed a myriad of, of domestic problems and said, oh, but we're still giving billions of dollars to countries abroad. You know, can we solve both these international responsibilities and our major domestic problems as well? As a hopeful U.S. senator, I will tell you that all politics have remained local and domestic considerations hold preeminence. But 
we have history looking back to say that when we ignore international affairs, when we, when we go ostrich-like, unfortunate things happen that have long-term negative consequences. So we must stay engaged and it must be a balancing act. And it's not either or, it is both. And it's the proportion thereof of activity. I believe the Biden administration has it right. We are in the repair of relations mode at present. And uh, even my, my Republican colleagues uh, will agree that we're on the right trend. We may not agree exactly on how the execution is being done, but we agree on the end states. Regarding domestically, I, I believe the, the funding, the effort that we're doing, um, albeit deficit spending in many cases has, has its detractors, that's for sure. But the, the deficit that we're experience, experiencing isn't because of international engagement. Mm -hmm. That's pocket change, that's, that's pocket litter. Less than 1% of the federal budget, yeah, right? And, 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 here's, and here's an overarching issue. From a climate perspective, we can, we can be the greenest and most carbon conscious continent ever here in America. But if we don't bring or help bring other people, the developing world, to our level of uh, standard of living in a more ecologically conscious way, then our efforts are minuscule compared to what we can expect from a carbon discharge perspective in Africa, for instance. Yeah. We must be part of the solution because we're all reliant on the solution. Yeah. And that's done by providing these incentives, right? I mean, it's, it's, you don't necessarily want to dictate to these countries, well, stop using all these cheap means of energy production because they'll look at you and go, I don't have a choice. So it's providing incentives and helping these other nations to build their own green infrastructures, essentially. And the technology. I was asked one time, uh, a matter of fact, it was yesterday on a, on a radio show, Frank, and if you had any desire to do any other job than what you're doing now, what would it be? And I said, I, hands down, if I could be responsible for building the electrical distribution grid on the continent of Africa, the rural, the REC equivalent of the Roosevelt era, that would be something I would end my life doing. Uh, with the international relations, bringing countries together, micro to macro, and it will change the direction of the world by doing something like that. Because ultimately, the future, the, the 2040 future of America and the world will be highly reliant on what happens in Africa. Absolutely. Like you said, it's, it's a fast-growing population, and uh, with that, a lot of energy usage as well. Pivoting a little bit to domestic politics, how, how does American foreign policy and global engagement help people specifically in Iowa? You know, what are some of those direct benefits, either national security, economic connections that you can bring home to Iowa during your time in Congress? Well, in a non-substantive way, there's a fabulous satisfaction that we're part of the solution. Keep in mind that Iowa agriculture and seed technology, genetics, and hybrids have changed the lifespan for millions of individuals worldwide. 
and 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 that ha- that is a badge of badge of uh, honor for academia in, in the state of Iowa. Uh, we want to be helpful uh, as a, as a state, and and historically we have been. Regarding international trade, the world is awash and is a slurry of rare earth metals that we all use in our daily lives. They're not evenly distributed. (laughs) So uh, we have a role in being the recipient of the products that emanate from those rare earth metals. And just from a natural resource perspective, that's important. Uh, It is important as well that uh, the human migration, which occurs throughout the millennia, doesn't disturb or disrupt the political environment to the detriment of of nations. So we need to be engaged to to ensure that in Africa, there is a viable future for the next generation. And and here in Iowa, I anticipate that the the continent of Africa with 60% of the unstressed farmland in the world in Africa will ultimately be a provider of vast agricultural resources. And here in Iowa, we can be part of that. When I speak to farming groups here, I often kind of uh, suss them out in, in seeing where they are with those comments because I've seen vast, rich soil with lakes nearby that are just sitting as they have for thousands of years. That ultimately, uh, especially when they're near the equator, think of the different products that they can grow three crops a year. Uh, this is all uh, available. And, and, and I think from a business perspective and ultimately uh, that prevent, provides from, um, from Americans alternate opportunities to grow and make a living on agriculture, we can do that. Uh, moreover, a vast number of businesses need to be developed in Africa that could use the assistance of, 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 of agribusiness and manufacturing businesses here in, in Iowa. Yeah, and I think it's creating those partnerships for economic success for both Africa and for the United States, that I think is so critical. And like you say, you know, so much of it too is just individual micro agribusiness where you talk to a lot of uh, small farmers in, in Minnesota or in Iowa, and they understand the importance of these global agricultural markets. And, you know, if we're not, if we don't have a seat at the table, somebody else does who ultimately isn't going to share our interests. Right. And, well, and the other points, what you're inferring is let's, let's just talk in plain terms about the, the Chinese engagement mm-hmm. on the continent. Yeah. And they've transcended America many fold in the last uh, 20 years. Uh, and matter of fact, it's an asymptotic curve where they're outdistancing us greatly every passing moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, my job in Africa was to A, be aware of what they were doing. Secondly, to illuminate to the locals because there's a, there's, it's, it is self-determination. If, they, if the local government and businessmen choose to be um, part of the Chinese business um, environment, I encourage that if that's what they want to do, as long as the citizenry is well aware of the long-term implications and, and that, and there's positive and negatives associated with that. Mm-hmm. Secondly, where U.S. engagement, where the Africa Union and the EU uh, and others could supercharge what the Chinese were doing, I think that was very positive. And we should, and we should double down on what they're doing to help out. 
Uh, lastly, where it needed to be confrontational, we shouldn't shy away from that. We should have the strength yeah. and the strength of commitment to say, we don't want this uh, for the following reasons. And we got to make sure that we have the capability to do all three such uh, observations and not let uh, Africa uh, be the environment expressly of, of Beijing. Yeah. And it, it doesn't help that in many cases, the, um, the Chinese model is much more one-sided, much more exploitative, where it's, you know, predatory debt trap diplomacy and that sort of thing, trying to extract resources more than just create a partnership. Absolutely. It's an extractive economic model in most cases, although there's also an element of it. Many of those Chinese workers will never go back to China. Yeah. So a couple more questions real quick. What, sure. um, what will be your top priorities then if you're elected to U.S. Senate? First and foremost, ensure that I have a, an office that is that is on step and ready to rock and roll in Washington, D.C. And, and having having worked early on for a senator who was exceedingly productive and got a lot done, that would be uh, that would be big as a more sustainable model for uh, for farming mm -hmm. so that it becomes a viable uh, line of work for the next generation on the family farm so that the century farms have a chance to become two century farms. Yeah. And that begets a cleaner air, cleaner water, that sort of thing. I see a desire to, to push education. And, and, and I see this desire from, from uh, constituents in the state. We've got to fix our medical uh, service, our medical providing preventive care to dental, to hearing, to eyesight, so that so much time, so much effort isn't spent on the administration of those medical uh, procedures. We have a great capability in this country that's undersubscribed by the profit model that we've adopted uh, in a post-World War II environment. That's probably the issue that is most on people's minds. It is most detrimental to the family because most people in a, in a, a broken ankle should not cause financial disruption to the family and, yeah. and put and for for years to come years uh, and that's what we're seeing and the fact that uh, a friend of mine is a doctor in a small town and he says I can I, I got I've got 600 people in my hometown here and I can only treat 200 of them because the other 400 are, are not in our uh, our network hmm. this is fundamentally wrong yeah so my concept for uh, medical is much like the medical that I enjoyed in almost 40 years in the military. It's, it was just so simple, so uncomplicated, so available, and price was not an issue. Yeah. I, I can't tell you the number of times, cause I have two small kids, the number of times, you know, they, they get sick with something and you wonder, well, do I take them into the ER and spend $600 or are they going to be just fine? And it's just a cough. It's, it's difficult. Well, well, and, and moreover, imagine if uh, you were a parent of a special needs child or uh, someone who was suffering from uh, mental instability or any host of other issues that complicated that child's mil uh, medical care, and you moved a lot. Mm -hmm. So you had to reestablish this each time and apply for it and see if, see if, if you've got government assistance to help care for it. And, and especially in a COVID environment, when those, when those facilities shut down, this is exceedingly trying 
and it's a part of our society, that must be fixed. Yeah, you won't get any objection from me here. <laughs> All right. Um, so lastly, just for fun, what are you reading and listening to these days? Oh, um, I uh, well, if I'm, I don't have a lot of free time. Yeah, but I when I'm, if it's if it's a Saturday night and I know I don't have to be doing something first thing on Sunday morning, um, while I'm making dinner, I'll probably be listening to Playing for Change radio on my on my little device uh, to the funky type music that that they play, and uh, um, and they're and they're that type of music. If I'm listening to something, I will go to the podcasts that are germane for what's coming up next and listen to as much of it as I can. I can never get finished, get, get through these. I, I honestly don't do any uh, non-focused listening these days, um, although I did prior to, to entering this race. Um, for reading, I have no less than six books in various stages of of reading and, and it has to do with uh, the life cycle of a tree to uh, international affairs, to the history of the house and the Senate on the Hill. And um, I have one novel, which I have, I'm being urged to crack open and its name escapes me. And that, that should tell you where, where novels are in my hierarchy of yeah. reading today. I wish they were higher. Uh, and um, I've got a ghastly number of articles that I've I've put in my, my to read list on this little device. Uh, and I, I look forward to airplane rides where I can crack this thing open and uh, read until I doze off. Um, yeah, I, 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 I suffer from, like probably like you, a broad interest across the spectrum of topics that do well on Jeopardy, but don't do so well uh, in time management. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that struggle of uh, the list keeps getting longer and longer. Um, if you, if you could recommend that book about trees, cause my three-year-old just asked um, about how trees work the other day. So um, that could be a, a good question for her to, to get answered. Well um, it's a little edgy, but uh, I will do that. I'll, I'll push that to you uh, offline, Nick. Thanks. Appreciate that. Sure. All right. Anything else you wanted to talk about before I wrap up? Well, I, I think uh, to your point about you know, is is AFRICOM really worthwhile? Is it working well? The answers to those things uh, is there's always room for improvement mm -hmm. uh, to refine ourselves. Uh, I think broadly in the United States here from a DOD perspective, we need to look at the command and control of such regional and functional combatant commands. We need to look at budgetary issues. Um, and we need to see how those commands are integrated with the other elements of government. But I would say AFRICOM and its overarching design was a better concept than some of the other uh, combatant commands in terms of it leads with diplomacy. And it, and it realizes that we are an, an adjunct to the diplomatic arms more so than uh, leading with uh, the DOD uh, fist. Well, with any luck, you know, you'll be in the U.S. Senate and you can uh, kind of help guide that policy. Well, I hope uh, I hope that's the case. I think I'd be a rather unique uh, senator and uh, 
look forward to these further discussions with you and people of your level of interest, which is superb. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to once again thank Admiral Franken for joining the show today and for all of his work in the military and public service. Thanks, of course, as always, to our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook and LinkedIn pages, or tweet us at orientalistexp. And lastly, please visit frankenforiowa.com to learn more about Admiral Franken's campaign for one of Iowa's U.S. Senate seats. I highly encourage you all to donate or sign up to be a volunteer as I have. Hopefully next time I'll be speaking with Senator Michael Franken. Thanks again, everyone, and we'll see you next time.